Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. That's the cool thing about being a Māori artist. To show me that that was possible. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora koutou, no mai hari mai ki te paperback gorillas, the podcast where we break down the kaupapa of interesting books uh, or other mana enhancing kōrero and share that with you. Uh, ko Pera Toku Ingoa, uh, on today's episode we have Dr Ben Walker uh, who will introduce himself much better than I can. <laughs> Kia ora Pera, uh, kia ora koutou, ko Ben Walker Toku Ingoa, ko ngā tirokoa te iwi. I'm a lecturer in the School of Management here at Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, I've been here now for about a year and a half, and before that I completed my PhD uh, over in Sydney in Australia, University of New South Wales. Um, and so broadly speaking, you know, I teach courses on management, but my I always feel like that's kind of a little bit of a a misnomer in the sense that my real interest is people studying people um psych, you know the psychology social interactions and i guess for me kind of things related to the workplace uh, so that's my research interest but yeah also uh, teaching is another big thing that i do i teach uh management 101 here shout out to any 101 students if they're listening because uh, we have about 700 students each trimester uh, here uh, so that's my other main gig Kia ora. Yeah, kia ora. Cool. Um, yeah, awesome. So uh, today I'm I'm super keen to dig into that uh, paper that you uh, published. Um, so I'll use uh, your own words or not my own words at least, um, but a, a blurb on the paper um, from from an article I read online uh, for our uh, kai fakarongo. So a performance-based identity arises when a person not only knows that they excel or at the other extreme uh, are completely inept at something, but feels fundamentally defined by that level of performance. Should they cease to perform to the same standard for any reason, they can lose their sense of self or a big chunk of it. So that that paper uh, read really interestingly to me around, um, so there's a lot of implications in there or uh, associations with with self esteem and self worth, mm-hmm. um, and and how you identify as a whole, which I find really interesting. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm super keen to to call it all about that. Um, I guess maybe we start with just you chatting about what you found in the in the paper to start with for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So that paper is basically what my PhD thesis was on: mm. this idea of performance based identity and. Where it started with is I knew I wanted to study identity. That's a little bit broad as a research topic. You can't just like do a thesis on identity because that's like half of the social science literature is pretty much about that topic. So necessarily I like I had to narrow in in the early days on something a little more specific. Um, so the other thing I was was still interested in but was interested in quite a bit at that time was professional sports. I was really wanted to do a piece of research that used professional sports as a, a context, you know, mm-hmm. where I could collect some insights. Um, and so, through reading a lot of what was out there already, the sort of 
the tiny fraction than I could on the stuff on identity and the time span that I had, I started to realize that there, especially in the management literature, where we're, a lot of the focus is on how can we get the best out of people, how can we get them to perform well in their jobs, a lot of it was on how can we help people cultivate these identities um, that help them to do that, that help them to do well. And so it was sort of one side of the feedback loop. But the other side of that feedback loop, well, what impact does performance then have on people's identities, wasn't something that people were really talking about, which to me was really interesting Mm -hmm. because, you know, as a student, as a PhD student, that's something you feel very strongly, you know, your results, um, your successes, your failures, they they impact you in a very big way. Um, so there's been a bit on that from a, a self-esteem perspective, obviously, a bit on that from the perspective of this thing called self-efficacy, which is basically self-confidence, um, but nothing that quite hit the nail on the head in terms of these situations where people start to identify really strongly with their, their grade. You know, so confidence as a future-oriented judgment. Identity is really, well, it can also be a future-oriented thing, but to a large extent it's about who am I now mm. and, and how good am I at what I do in this present moment. So that was sort of where it all started. Um, unfolded from there as part of the PhD, I wrote that paper you mentioned earlier, which was a, what we call a conceptual paper, which is really what means you know we're just presenting an idea. Here's something that we think happens. And when I say we, it was written in conjunction with my thesis supervisor Dan Capra over in Sydney um, and so you know that paper was the presentation of the idea and the rest of my thesis was the expiration of that idea so actually talking to um, professional rugby players is one sample I talked with so players from the New South Wales Waratahs and the Australian Sevens mm-hmm. teams as well men's and women's um, and also then academics because I realised as I went through my thesis this is something that's really uh, a big deal in my own world, my own working world of academia. Uh, so yeah, that that paper was really the first, you know, our first attempt to articulate the idea, performance-based identity, where people come to feel really personally defined by how well they do, not just what they do, which is this idea of kind of professional or occupational identity. Mm. Many people have that, right? Many people feel that their their work, the activity, is a big part of who they are. <laughs> sort of step further and say it's not just what I do but how well I do it that I connect with is a slightly different thing and that has um, you know some slightly different consequences as well or sometimes some drastically different consequences Mm. Um, yeah so that was basically what that paper was about we kind of outlined the idea here are some potential consequences both negative and positive of these types of identities Um, and one thing we also mentioned in the in the introduction as, as we kind of said it in the broader social kind of context which is one where all of us feel that pressure to perform and whatever it is that we do mm-hmm. you know that's like pervasive across so many across work across school parenting you know these things that we shouldn't just do whatever it is we do we should be really good at it we should excel at it we should be at the top um, and so we kind of talk about you know some of the historical foundations of those the reasons why that's happening um and then we go to the next step which is well what impact is this having on us as individuals and the basic argument is that we're seeing more of these performance-based identities where people start to define themselves not on 
the, the well, maybe in addition to or instead of the old stuff, like I've defined myself based on my culture or my religion or the organization that I work for or my family. But also, even within each of those things, it's not just about belonging to them. It's about the extent to which I, I perform those wells role, uh, perform those roles well or poorly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, cool. And so, is there so when you talk about performing in those roles, like, what if I've got four different roles that I have a way to assess my performance in? Uh, and uh, different, like like how much does the uh, my performance in role one? So my role as a father, how and say I I believe that I'm doing that really poorly. Is there a downstream effect on how I and my self esteem or my worth or my um, my belief in my performance in another role, like my performance at work? Mm. Like are they how interlinked are they so, if at all? Yeah, so this is interesting, right? Because what you're getting at is this idea of of the specificity of these identities um so i'll give you an example and then i'll kind of abstract up to answer the question so when i was interviewing the rugby players about these things and about you know whether they see themselves as top performers or not um the funny thing was that a lot of them saw themselves as top performers but some of them made that judgment very broadly, like I'm one of the mm. best players in, in Super Rugby. And some of them made that judgment very narrowly. So I'm one of the best in this team at doing all the shitty stuff on the field that no one else wants to do, like cleaning out rucks and mm. all that stuff that, that like the front row in rugby does. And so I sort of people I noticed were quite opportunistic. And this is something that's well documented in the psycho- psychological literature. Like people you know they kind of it's like if you're in a, at the sea you're just going to grasp at whatever you can to to boost your self-esteem up at least in most cases and so these i saw with these players that they would do that they would develop this identity sometimes it was around that kind of high level i'm a really good player and i know that because i've won this award and i've scored this many tries or whatever there were other players, though, who were very specific. Like, I'm very good at doing the, the hard work on the field, and that's what my point of distinction. So I think even within one field, like playing rugby, you see people set these identities at different levels of specificity. And I think that also is the case, then, if we go looking across life domains. You know, so if you're, if you're really good, if, or at least if you sense that you're really good at a number of different activities, being a dad teaching research whatever um then i think people will tend to go to that quite high level of well i'm just kind of an effective person you know like i'm I'm pretty good at a wide range of things um there are other people though who may be and this might be common for people who really focus in something that's very common i think on their work or their their professional life and say well yeah i don't i might not excel in these other areas of my life but I'm really really awesome at this um, so I think all of those things are possibilities and what's interesting are, are the consequences mm. of those different paths you know people go those different paths some people m- might not even care that much about whether they they do well in a particular area or even if they you know maybe they care about doing well but in a very different way so if you care about um, 
you know, a university is a good example of this with students. Some students really care about the grade and they use that as their measure of success. And some students really care more about, you know, do they feel like they're learning something? Do they feel like they're at a more knowledgeable place than they were six months, a year ago, two years ago? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts mm. to these things. And you can see it, like, I guess, on a surface level, it feels kind of obvious. But then, yeah, for me, doing the thesis on it four and a half years, you can kind of drive yourself a bit mad by just thinking about all the stuff yeah, in so much detail. Yeah. And so just, um, I guess, for the benefit of our, uh, our kaiwhakarongo out there, you were living in Australia when you wrote this thesis, hence the Australian rugby players. They probably should make that clear yeah 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 yeah. it wasn't a a a preference (laughs) although after the last world cup they could probably use all the help they could get but um no it was with australian rugby players um just because of where i was living at the time basically and the the connections that were available yeah yeah um and so that thing that you mentioned around you know if you if you're out in the sea and you you know you need to grab something to hold of so are you saying that there's like, is there a need? Do we have a fundamental need to find something that we're good at? Is that why we do that? Or are you talking more about the just in regards to the grabbing at a specific thing? Mm. Um, is there a need for us to hold on to something and believe that we're good at it? Yeah, well, a lot of the, the, the classic theories that on motivation, why do people mm. do the things that they do? A lot of those are need-based and they make the case there's, there's so the one that many people know of is Maslow's hierarchy of needs the different needs that are there one of the more recent ones um, that connects quite closely with the stuff I've been thinking about is self-determination theory mm-hmm. so these researchers uh, Edward Dietschy and Richard Ryan and they first proposed this theory back in I can't remember exactly off the top of my head maybe the 80s um but the basis of their theory of, of motivation, so they're saying this is a theory of motivation that broadly explains why people exert a lot of effort on some things and not others, is that people have these three fundamental needs, which are autonomy, belonging or relatedness, and competency. You know, So we need to feel free, we need to feel part of something bigger than ourselves, and we need to feel like we're good at something. Mm. So that... Uh, dovetails quite closely you know their their argument is that this is a in the classic kind of pure psychology perspective they take quite a a biological evolutionary view Mm -hmm. and sort of make the argument well in order to evolve and and survive and get to where we are as a species all of these three things were necessary Um, and one of the things they, they point out that's related to what we've been talking about is this idea you know of competency they say that everyone deep down within themselves has a need to feel like they're good at something mm. um, that they they have competency now those needs everyone might have those to more or less degrees you know so you or I might place more importance on some of those needs more than others and that can also change over time so at different times in our life we might place more emphasis on the need for belonging um, as opposed to the need for competency and, mm. and all that kind of stuff. So so a lot of the classic theories on motivation, yeah, they would make that point, actually. That, um, now, that's not to say that's necessarily true, yeah. because as I always point out to the students, right, a theory is a theory. Yeah. It's an attempt to explain and capture reality. Mm. Um, and there has been work that's sort of 
you know, critical of those perspectives. Critical Maslow has he sort of made a similar similar arguments to self determination theory, at least in terms of the need idea, and he's been somebody who's been criticised a lot. Mm-hmm. People saying, well, actually, that's not the case for everyone. That's not how it works for everyone. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something that's been. It's not a new idea. I think mm. it's something that's been alluded to quite a lot. The um, the, the the need to be good at something is an interesting. When I like, I've thought about that a little bit, um, and kind of landed on for me personally. Anyway, it's not so much a need to be good at anything, but it's the need to uh, know that I could get good at the thing. You know, so I need to know that I have the capability to master that, or to have some kind of mastery over that thing. Yeah. Um, and so I think if you think about people who are prepared to try something new like they never know that they're good at it right yeah. maybe or unless maybe they know they're good at starting something new I don't know yeah um, but that's, yeah. A, that's probably a windy rabbit hole yeah um, that's interesting uh, that need I mean one of the things yeah I, I mean, a lot of it comes back to what we mean by when we say good at something mm. and I think that's like the kicker that can completely we can both say oh you know, we both care about being good at something. Mm. But what that actually means at the concrete everyday level can be very different for us. Mm. You know, like I could mean, well, I mean, by that I mean being in the top 1% mm. of all basketball players that are on the planet. And it's like, it's quite you different from, from yeah. <laughs> it's quite different from saying, you know, I just, being good at something to me means um, scoring 10 points a game mm. kind of thing. Everyone, there's so much um, subjectivity and personal kind of judgment mm. that's involved in those, in those things. Or um, being valued by the team, right? Like that might be yeah, good for you. Yeah, you know, and the, the great thing I guess about life is we all have the the freedom of most of us some of us more than others to set those goalposts mm. where we want them to but I do think um, this is something I've talked about we talk about in the paper is that modern the modern world uh, modern society culture does you know, emphasize a lot of pressure on you to set the goalposts in a specific way. Mm. And I think what you see, at least in the Western kind of developed countries, um, is this idea that work in particular is something that you should strive to be good at. So be very good in that one specific domain. And also um, this idea of social comparison, this Mm. idea that, well, it's about being better than others as opposed to better than you were a year ago Mm. or five years ago. You know, or, or meeting some particular standard. It's actually just about, it's quite competitive in that way. So I think those two things, although we have the freedom to set the goalposts where we want to, when we are talking about what does it mean to be good, there's a lot of, there's some very strong pressures mm. to set them in a very particular way if you want to um, fit in, I guess, mm. in society. Yeah, there's, um, so like I talk with a, a, a few different kayakal um, in the schools that I work with as part of Shoebox Christmas. Oh, yeah. And um, we had some interesting all about uh, those um, children who, like, there are different opportunities to have a status in, in school, and, you know, whether it's in the classroom, and I guess, you know, even across all the different classrooms, whether it's maths or this, whatever different subject, um, there's the field, there's the, the court, there's the, um, the stage, all these different 
areas or, or zones within the, the school where where Tamariki have that opportunity to have a status or to be good at something yeah. um, and to be valued by the by the school for their input. Um, and but those are like you say quite clearly defined, right? Like mm-hmm. when I say there's a lot of them, they're all very well defined and well established by a Western frame, I guess, of, of this is what you is expected of you as a child. Um, and so one like we were we most often have this conversation in the context of what about the the Tamariki who don't don't reach a status of good in any of those zones, you know, yeah. what, what how do you give them another opportunity to feel like they're good at something um so that's quite interesting um yeah and the and the piece in there around uh the work um you know being good at work um something i thought of when reading the paper like what what about when that's your identity like you base your identity on how well you perform at work but the work you're doing might not necessarily be aligned to your your fundamental values right like that's quite yeah, that's quite interesting. This is—I was talking with this exact issue with someone the other day. Um, this idea, because a lot of there's a lot of shit jobs out there, mm. you know. Like to be blunt, there yeah. are a lot of crappy jobs. Many people, probably even most people, are working in jobs that they don't really like. Mm. And so, yeah, that's—I mean—that's a whole other rabbit hole we could get into. But if we kind of build from there. Um, I think what you see then is a lot of people getting to a point where um, then, so they're in these situations, they don't really see a way out because, you know, they have a family to support or whatever, Mm. Um, so they're kind of, uh, well, stuck maybe isn't the right word, but kind of stuck in these jobs that that don't connect with their personal values or bring a lot of satisfaction just by virtue of the working conditions, you know, the pay could be bad, it could be a bad boss or whatever, mm. or the work itself is just kind of boring. And so I think in these situations, again, it's like the you're in the ocean looking for something to grab onto to make you feel good about yourself. And you can always grab onto being good at whatever the thing is, you know. There's always an option there to, to be the best at whatever the job is, even if the job is kind of not that interesting mm. or... or something you're not really passionate about i think you see that quite often with people Mm. um there was an example we actually use in in an earlier version of that paper uh that we mentioned it didn't get make the final cut because we had to trim it down but i really liked as an example was from the movie um kenny i don't know if you've heard of it it's again an australian movie yeah i've heard of it i think i've watched it so he works as a a cleaner Mm. and um sort of comes from a family with you know with history of of being cleaners and there was this quote in the movie where he says like you know when people see the the fireman it's so the context of the movie is that it's sort of like a a fictional documentary so it's a documentary but it's not based on real events Mm -hmm. but it's definitely a situation i think many people could connect with he's saying you know when kids see a fire truck coming down the the street they run for the fire truck and say oh look a fireman you know it's sort of a seen as this high status job you're saying with me when someone sees my cleaning van pull up no one runs out and does Mm. that but I still take a huge amount of pride in being the best damn cleaner that I can be Mm. you know so I think it's a that movie and that quote and that idea I think is something that yeah probably a lot of people can connect with you know Uh, because it is tricky when you get into I mean the nature of work the various forces that are 
a degrading work and making it less and less interesting and more and more monotonous for some people. Um, you know, I think the this idea of then focusing on performance as a way to feel good about yourself is definitely something that you would see more of, that I'd suspect you'd see more of. Mm. And in the... Um like in the paper, you talk about the difference between, I think, between self-efficacy and um, a performance-based identity being where you, where that measurement of good performance comes from. Like, like performance-based identity being, you're more likely to set that measurement of good yourself. Is that right? As opposed to, um, you know, the the self-efficacy thing, which might be measured by what others say or do around you. Yeah, so that's part of the distinction, I think. Um, I think with the, the self-efficacy, self, you know, self-confidence thing, so the big researcher there is Albert Bandura, mm-hmm. and like he's he's like been yeah, someone who I had to read a lot of his stuff to make the, in academia, you know, if you're proposing a new idea, it's not just enough to propose the idea. People, you have to say, well, how is this different to what's already there? Yeah, right. And self-efficacy is something that's been studied, you know, and across the social sciences, education, psychology, management, whatever, I mean, there's just a huge amount of research on that. And that was a big hurdle, for me, a big sort of tormentor during my PhD is how do I distinguish this idea, which I just have this very strong hunch is different from that. Mm. And where we got to is basically self-efficacy is a very future-oriented thing Mm -hmm. it's about capability so what do i think i can do or how certain am i that i can do that thing to that level so it's very forward-looking performance-based identity at least as we define it is present focus so it's who am i now how do i see myself in this moment and those two things will often line up with one another and be quite similar. If I think I'm really good at something, well, then I'm really confident that I can do that task to a high level, but not always. So you think of the example we had in the paper with someone like um, Michael Jordan. So I'm sure, well, based on recent quotes and interviews I've seen with him, I think it's pretty clear he still sees himself as like the greatest basketball player of all time. Mm-hmm. So very positive strong performance-based identity but if you ask him how confident he was that he could go out tomorrow and score 30 points in an nba game well maybe he would say yes but i suspect the rational part of him would be like yeah my body isn't the same as it used to be Mm -hmm. i probably can't do that so there you see like with people who are kind of retired but have still earned the status you see a divergence Mm -hmm. in confidence and identity Uh, so the identity endures um, although it's more probably for in the case of Michael Jordan it's probably something that's uh, constantly being you know threatened a little bit by these new players coming through and and, and trying to, to take that place um, so yeah I think the main difference between them is, is confidence or, or self-efficacy is quite future oriented and performance based identity is quite present mm. focused um, where it would get a bit more tricky is where you start because identities can also be we don't just have ideas of who we are now but we have kind of desired selves who do we want to be in the future we have feared selves who are I scared of being in the future like who do I not want to become Um, so when you start bringing that stuff in the argument can get a little bit more um, tricky Mm -hmm. but for now anyway it seems we managed to make that case pretty persuasively cool yeah and so what uh, if anything makes somebody more likely to 
I guess, to put more emphasis on their on a performance based identity. Is that something that you so so yeah so sort of more likely to to identify with performance as opposed to something else, yeah. right? Like culture or mm. family or whatever. Um, so one of the big things that we've talked about is personality. So personality, there's a whole field of research on that massive literature about our personalities and our traits and basically why are we the way we are. Subtly different from identity, uh, at least the way I think about it, is that personality is sort of how you are, whereas identity is how you see yourself, or who you think you are. Right? And so some, as we all know, there's probably people in our lives who see themselves one way uh, but actually behave and act in quite different ways. Yes. So personality and identity can be very different things. Um, but personality, you know, those traits, the tendencies, uh, there's a lot of the things people often talk about personality is a nature or nurture. I think most of the, the consensus at the moment is that, it, like a lot, pretty much everything, it's a combination of both of those things. Partly it's inherited. It's also strongly influenced by our, our upbringing and our, the social forces. Um, but some people have personalities. One of the traits that, that's often talked about in personality research is this idea of conscientiousness. Uh, so this, I, and when I teach this to students, I use the example of like Lisa Simpson from The Simpsons. Um, increasingly, they don't get that reference because I'm realising <laughs> yeah, yeah. this generation does not watch The Simpsons. Yeah. But it used to work as a reference, you know, this tendency to be very hardworking, to respond to people's expectations, to kind of care about what people think of you. Um, so people who are very high on that trait are probably more disposed, predisposed to develop performance-based identities just because they care about doing well so much. Um, people with a high sort of need for achievement so it's very similar to that idea of conscientiousness people who really feel like they want to achieve things and get things done and you know um, have that drive Um, people who have a high on the perfectionistic traits as well so that's a trait perfectionism and there's actually lots of different types of perfectionism so you can be have self-oriented perfectionism where you expect absolute perfection from yourself but you can also have like other induced perfectionism mm. where you expect a lot of the significant others in your life generally those two things move together but not always um, so with that I think people who expect absolute top results perfection from themselves it's another it's a part of the whole same family you know of of attributes that I think exist um, alongside with performance based identities um, it's also interesting when you start thinking about it at the level of culture. So one of the things we mentioned, sort of explore in the paper, is this idea of different cultures placing more or less emphasis on performance and achievement. Um, now, as we talked about at the beginning, sometimes it depends on how you define that, and that's really the more interesting issue. But broadly speaking, you sometimes you know you, there's been research showing that some cultures. Um, tend to value achievement in a in a kind of conventional sense, I suppose, getting good grades or earning a lot of money. Um, and it is found there's variation across cultures around the world in that. So some cultures are characterised as being very having a very high performance orientation, and other cultures not so much. Um, but those are again, that's an area that's you could debate that 
quite a bit because mm. a lot of it depends on what you define performance to mm. be, I would say. And now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Paperback Gorillas was brought to you by the number 23 and our damn selves. It costs us about $20 a month to keep these episodes online so that you can listen, uh, as well as the time and effort that goes into recording the corridor uh, and making it happen. But we pay that because we think the kopapa of sharing that mana-enhancing corridor is important and that it's worth it. If you agree and you've enjoyed the episode so far, then please consider donating uh, to help with those costs. You can do so at patreon.com slash paperbackgorillas. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-a-p-e-r-b-a-c-k-g-u-e-r-r-i-l-l-a-s. Every dollar that you give helps us make sure that that mana-enhancing corridor gets shared and gets heard. So thank you. And there's also a lot of, I mean, I don't know if you think about Māori, there's a lot of influence by the current frame, right? Like, you know, yeah. where we are in history, and we're obviously affected a lot by other cultures and uh, and the the interpretation of, of good and of performance. Um, yeah. It affects our own, right? It, totally. So it's uh, the idea that cultures exist as their own little islands mm. in this day and age is pretty inaccurate sure yeah you know with the nature of the world everything is kind of uh probably better to think of them as streams mm. kind of flowing into each other mm. um just kind of as a side note i saw someone's someone quoting you uh, a couple of weeks ago and i really liked the quote which was um and hopefully this was actually from you uh it's just imp- i can't believe someone quoted me <laughs> <laughs> you're a doctor that's what people do uh it was you know, before you run back to help your iwi uh, get really, really good at something that your iwi needs, oh, yeah. um, although yeah, that's a that's a really cool, uh, really cool reminder and quote, I guess for yeah. people out there doing yeah. a thing in a field. Someone could also pull me up on that though with the things we've been talking about, mm. saying, well, "What do you mean by being good?" Yeah, you know? true. But I, I think yeah, with that one, I was just trying to, I think, kind of trying to give people because that was I said that in a talk with some rangatahi here. At, the university, mm-hmm. the Māori students here, and um, one of the things I think you can really feel in Te Ao Māori as a young person is this pressure to to give back mm. to the collective, whatever that is, whether it's whānau or hapu or iwi, um, and sometimes I feel, I mean this is not just actually in Te Ao Māori, this is something that I see with young people generally with you know want to do a startup for instance mm-hmm. who want to in a real rush to make their contribution mm. to the world which is super admirable and you never want people to lose that to do the positive thing but sometimes i think it's important to 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 build up a skill set mm. in something first you know um so that you have a means you have the tools to make that impact mm-hmm. and to do it in a way that's sustainable um over the long term mm. yeah but but then also not getting not missing the the larger point i think which is why am i doing this why am mm. i trying to get good at this thing well you know it's not necessarily just to benefit myself but it's for this higher purpose mm. so it's always a good motivator i think yeah i think that's um you know going back to the those those three kind of motivators i guess in te ao maori we're quite lucky to kind of for for a lot of us it, feel already part of a bigger thing right and so I guess then if you combine that with that need to be 
good at something, which I imagine, I don't know, biologically or evolutionarily or whatever, is probably about making contribution to, you know, to the the iwi or the the campfire or the clan that you were in a cave with. Um, yeah. You know, like being good enough to to contribute to the system, yeah. right? To go cool, like I can play my part here. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's quite a natural want for. Uh, for Māori to yeah. want to go back to the marae and yeah. well, scrub this is, the walls this or is one of those something things, else. You know, in, in, in academia in New Zealand, there's often a divide between um, mainstream academia and Māori academia, mm. you know, and there's this idea that that what, hap- what happens in the mainstream, you know, isn't relevant or is... And there are some very valid critiques of mainstream research and how it's its relationship with te ao Māori. Um, but it's interesting you say that because you, know, you think about that, that motivation theory I mentioned at the beginning, that idea of belonging mm. is one of the fundamental needs. And you see that, I think in Māori culture, you see that very strongly. That's one that's really emphasised. Um, and I think that's one that actually Western society, although, as we said, it's hard to, to draw clean boundaries around these things, but Western society, poorly stated, is sort of not very good at mm. and could learn a lot from. Definitely. Te ao Māori. Um, I think it's particularly interesting, this might be a bit of a tangent, but when you start thinking about parenting, mm-hmm. so I have a daughter who's nearly two, um, and my wife's family is Chinese, um, and for the last year, for various reasons, since moving back from Australia, we've stayed with her parents. So our daughter has grown up um, in a way that I think many, you know, uh, Pākehā, people our age would see as very strange and and undesirable with us living with her grandparents and all of us kind of acting as the parents Mm. you know which it does have its pros and cons but it's kind of to me I feel like we've got so far away from that in western society Mm. I don't think it's a good thing because for the one thing I mean it's great for our daughter (laughs) which is good because she has her grandparents around and and all these different she's learning the real you know so Chinese from them and Māori from me but as a parent it makes your job a lot easier yeah and I mean they're Māori tēnā as well right like that's that's very Māori yeah um, having all of the whānau there and then being raised um, you know alongside or partially by your your grandparents the same thing Um, and so I think there's a lot to be said for that model of raising a child Mm. particularly from the perspective of the the well-being of parents Mm. because you talk to most parents these days and you you know especially if their kids are young kids or whatever these go how's it going like ah yeah I mean to (laughs) Kahu uh, who was you know Needed, needed me in his bed last night from his two, between three and four. Like. But, you know, that's it, I think. It's it's really, a lot of parents have a lot of, a really tough time mm. these days. Um, and I think part of it is because we have this model, the Western adopted model of raise your children, you should raise them by yourself, you should be mm. the dominant caretaker. And maybe it connects in a weird way with this idea of, well, I need to feel like a good parent, mm. so I should. that means I should be doing you know, most or nearly all of the all work of the and, and not delegating yeah. to or bringing in other members of the family or whatever. I don't know. But I do think um, it's something that we could probably revisit mm. as a culture, that that idea of having the two parents who raise the kid and, and we visit the grandparents mm. 
you know, every yeah. second weekend or something like that. I mean, it's a, it is a bit. Of, it seems to me, at least, um, as both someone I guess who thinks about these issues and someone living it, it seems like a weird setup. Yeah, and I mean, like I, I uh, talk to your your dad every now and then, oh, yeah. uh, Kilda Pitipi, um, <laughs> and I know he, you know. That he's quite he enjoys that connection and that time with with his uh, mukapuna, right? Like I think most grandparents do. I think if you offered a lot of grandparents the opportunity to hey be more invested and spend more time with your your grandchild, most or a lot of the ones that I know would would definitely be keen. Yeah, um, but I think on behalf of parents, you know, of of our generation, part of it I think is a self imposed thing. Mm. You know, feeling but self-imposed in the sense we kind of internalise it from the broader environment, what we see in the movies mm. and the books and the YouTube videos and stuff. That you know, you're the parent, drive this, mm. and 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 be especially that stuff around control, mm. be in control of your child's life and and that kind of thing. Anyway, I think we got a bit. Yeah, yeah. But there's also one, one, there's a funny thing that I've seen a few times as well around a reluctance to um and i guess maybe it is relinquish their control but you know a reluctance to um like almost a distrust for someone's for the grand for the the grandparents of their child you know like i don't i I don't want to give my child over for a weekend to a to a grandparent because i don't really trust them Mm. um you know, which is funny considering that obviously they raised you, and so any yeah. kind of uh, any this, negative uh, like perception of the yeah, parenting is yeah. very much a reflection yeah. of what you think of yourself. Um, yeah. I find that quite funny. Um, but also back to the like, I think the thing you, you said around um, you know in, in Te Ao Māori, we have that sense of belonging, and we um, we do that quite well. Um, you know, a lot of us, for those of us fortunate enough to to, to feel so. Um, that that's quite a like I don't think that's something that a lot of Māori I talk to don't actually think about that intentionally like it's one of those things that just self fulfills right like you feel good by singing in kapahaka or by you know singing that waiata with the group and so you do it again without necessarily thinking like what you're getting there is this this cool sense of belonging and this connection to that other um, uh, thing that you mentioned in the motivating theory or theory of motivation around that um, part being a part of something bigger, you know, you get those really um, acutely by by being involved in Tao Māori without necessarily realising that that's what's happening. I think, like yeah. for me anyway, like as I've tried to learn my deal over the last year or, or, or two, um, yeah. and feeling that connection kind of be rekindled and, and strengthened, um, I've noticed it because it's kind of come back versus you know something that I've just always had, yeah, uh, which is which is quite cool, quite yeah. interesting. Well, it's yeah. that idea of you know, people say culture is a bit like the you know the fish doesn't notice the water that it's swimming mm. in because that's just always the way yeah, it's been. Yeah, and yeah. I think yeah, so cultures definitely have that element to them where there's things you don't even realise are a feature mm. of your culture until usually you experience something else or you experience you're used to one thing and then you go you know mm. back to or experience another culture and you see it and you're like wow. It's actually quite different mm. to what I'm used to. Uh, so, thinking again about parenting, does the does the the theory of performance based identity make you, uh, or has it made you rethink how you 
do parenting be a parent yeah are parenting definitely i think i think just part of all of this stuff just through not even like the idea that i developed or the theory academic stuff that i've produced but just through reading everything that everyone else has said about this Mm. stuff and and thinking about these pressures to perform um and and awareness you know i think again the fish out of water thing many people at the sort of semi-conscious or even a sort of unconscious level experience these pressures but they're not aware of them Mm. in a very lucid kind of way so for me just thinking about these things and observing and noticing where they're coming in I think it's definitely had a big impact on how I parent and particularly the idea uh, she's still you know our daughter's she's only two but she's she's definitely developing a personality but particularly the idea of trying to um, instill in her this idea to be really reflective and thoughtful about what it means to do well Mm. I think but also the there's a balance because on the one hand you want your kid to have a you know a happy life and um, a good sense of self-esteem and that kind of stuff but on the other hand you also want to set them up to succeed mm. in this world as a you know to use a golf analogy kind of like to play it as it lies you know we live in an imperfect world we live in a world where there's these pressures and these norms and expectations around performance and stuff so it's a bit of a balancing act you know like you could i guess you can opt out of society Mm. and say we're going to do something completely different which people do do um i just that's not quite my approach so for me it's been that balancing act between you know just being aware of of what it, what you personally define as as doing well um focusing sort of more you know, i think focusing on self-improvement is a huge thing instead of how well am i doing relative to others how well am i doing relative to my past self mm. for me that's been something i really try and stick to and i guess i'm well, as she gets a bit older, try and pass on to her because pretty much if you are devoting effort to something and you're spending a reasonable amount of time on it, you're always going to get better mm. up, up to a certain point. You know, if, if, you, if you're spending a decent amount of time with something and you're, you're practicing, you're pretty much always going to get better. So the, the, cur- the slope, the line over time is always going up. On the other hand, if you're comparing yourself with other people all the time, almost always there's going to be someone who's better than you Mm. or who has more than you you know so that that social comparison thing i mean it's great if you're the best in the world at something (laughs) objectively like if you're lebron james that's a great way to judge yourself and to feel good about yourself if you're not which is pretty much it's every other basketball player on the planet it's probably not such a good way of going about things so for me it's been a shift personally and then uh, I guess it kind of feeds into my parenting style or or philosophy which we all have but um, it's been that shift from not focusing too much on how I'm doing relative to others I still focus on that a little bit which I think is pretty natural Um, but 
prioritizing that self-improvement thing you know do I feel like the paper that I wrote this year was better than last year do I feel like the class I just did was better than the same class last year mm. and and usually the answer is is yes and sometimes it isn't um, but most of the time it is so it's I think that's healthy um, and that's something that I try and yeah, or at least as she, as my daughter's growing up, I'll try and pass on to her. And just general awareness too about not being too judgy about mm. my own parenting. Because I think that's something that people kind of get hung up on as well. Like, am I a good dad? Mm. You know? And it's like, well, what does that really even mean? How mm. do you define that? How do you measure that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, that, that can also be an excuse for, kind of if you're not very good at something of weaseling out of it um and sort of uh using it as a cop-out but for for me it's something anyway that i try to be when i have those thoughts to try and treat them with a degree of um you know an arm's length kind of thing instead of really clinging on to it and feeling like this is a question Mm. i need to know the answer to Mm. yes that thing right like what are you doing it for if you're, um, you know, if you're trying to be a good dad, like what you're really trying to do is help create a good life or a happy life for your child, right? Like, yes. that's the question to be asking. Are you yeah. doing that? Um, yeah. So yeah. it's sort of focusing on the the higher goal. Mm. Um. Anything else that you would? Like if if you think about the, I don't know the potential effect on uh, on rangatahi, rangatahi Māori um, that might not be doing well in those we kind of talked about those established goalposts. Um, so I mean, you talked a little bit about what what you would do with with your daughter. Mm-hmm. Anything else that you would kind of. Uh, suggest as a another way to rethink those goalposts um or just not get so not create them i guess because they are self-created things mm. all the time or self-bought into things yeah one of the things i'm very aware of like when it comes to the kind of stuff i study the psychological side of things there's a lot of you know self-help books and TED talks and stuff about these issues and a lot of them yeah (laughs) and there's a lot of a lot of the time the advice and the things that are presented are very which is natural if you're a psychologist because your focus tends to be the individual but they're they're individual level solutions Mm -hmm. but often the the problem the root problem is the social Mm -hmm. problem Um, so I think but then I'm a sort of a pragmatist, so I think it's important. Yes, people need some concrete tools and strategies to be able to deal with life and what happens. At the same time, though, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that collectively, or either as you know, not necessarily the whole society level, but at the, at the group level or community level, there are norms and things we need to shift and create to change that root mm. kind of issue. You know, and the the root issue I think is that we live in a world that defines performance in a very narrow way Mm. and imposes that on people and says live up to this chances are you're probably not going to meet it Mm. so good luck you know so I think on the one hand at the individual level some of the things we've already talked about just being aware of what does it mean to you to do well 
um, is important. Also, exploring different avenues. So this is advice I give a lot to first-year university students. It's like there's a whole, there's like an endless list of activities and things out there that you could put your effort to. Mm -hmm. The only way if you know that you have some natural talent for that is to just try things out. Um, And it can be trying things out that you never expected Mm. to be, you know, to find success in. Um, And so, you know, I do think there is, all of us have that need to be competent. We have the freedom to to define what competent means to some degree. Um, And so, you know, you do want to feel reasonably good at things. And so experimenting with different activities, I think, is really important. Uh, and then also to talk link back to that collective stuff is finding a group where you can as a as a group or a collective you know, whether it's your group of friends whether it's your family whether it's a club whatever you collectively set your norms in a way that's productive and healthy and and kind of lifts everyone up instead of giving them a ridiculous standard that they're mm. never going to meet um, because when you start, it's a bit hard to be the only one going, well, everyone else is saying this is what it means to do well, but I'm going to say this is what it means to do well, to be a good rugby player or whatever, mm. right? People just be like, okay. And therefore I'm the best. Yeah, you do you, <laughs> and and we'll just keep doing our thing. But if you have a, a group, human beings are really sensitive to kind of group level things and activities. So if you set it in that way, um, then that immediately just gives you a stronger you know, it feels real um, when you start to set the standards and the expectations and things like that at the group level mm. and everyone buys into that. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be the sort of advice I would give is not to be too... That idea, I guess, of not feeling like it's only your problem mm. or issue. I think that's really important and a lot of... As I said at the beginning, a lot of kind of self-help stuff and um, modern pop psychology does implicitly push that view that this is a an individual level problem and therefore the individual just has to optimise themselves and, and all will be well. Um, I think some degree of that is helpful, but at the same time, thinking more deeply about the broader environment and things that are creating that problem and doing something about that is also really important. Mm. Cool. Kilda. So this will be our, our parting for Carl. Okay. Uh, if you had the opportunity to insert a thought into the mind of uh, all of Aotearoa, um, and it can be as big or as little as you want it to be, uh, what would that thought or that realisation or that understanding but you probably don't have a whole paper to <laughs> put it in, but... Dang! <laughs> Man, that is a really good question. And I can safely say that it's one I'd never thought of before. But if I did have to do that, insert a thought into the minds of that many people, what would it be? Hmm... Probably... I think it would be something along the lines of be a thought in in the form of a question, Mm -hmm. which is a very academic thing (laughs) to propose. But it would be the question of um, life is short 
so therefore how do I want to spend each and every one of my days Hmm. you know what really matters to me at the the life level not the day level the week level the month level even the year level but what really matters to me at the level of my my life as a whole um I think that would be the thing because I think that's a question and it's a bit of a luxury to be able to ask that question mm. too because not Hope everyone answer right to think about it. Yeah. Mm. Not everyone has the time mm. or the energy or the space to just sit back and ask themselves. Mm. I'm very privileged as an academic that, you know, that's kind of my job is revolves around questions like that. But most people don't have that privilege. So I would say if they can if they have a, a point or a moment in life to be able to, to think about those things and have that thought, mm. it's a pretty good starting point for then determining where you focus your efforts and and what decisions you make and what you let kind of bother you or or stick in your mind or, or take up your mental attention throughout the days. Choice. Cool. Vato mm. fukaro. Kia ora. Kia all right, Kilda Kai Fakarongo. That's uh, that's us for the episode. We hope you uh, enjoyed the call. all. We enjoyed having it, and uh, Kilda Ben for blessing us with your thoughts. Kilda uh, for having me and for explaining the paper. Kakite. Kilda Iuma. Peter, again, one last thing before you go. Uh, if you've enjoyed the episode, don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast player so that you can hear about the new episodes as we release them. Uh, and if you know anybody else that you think might enjoy the Kōrero, uh, please leave a review either in iTunes or your podcast player uh, to let others know what the podcast's about, what the Kōrero is about, uh, and that it's worth their time listening to. Kia ora.